This is Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. We're living in a time of major cultural change, and we've talked about how that change can look on an individual or tribal level. But what about on a country level? How can governments use different psychological and branding techniques to change behaviors around work, life, and crisis situations like the one we're living in now with COVID-19? Not too many people are qualified to answer a big question like this. But Rory Sutherland is a unique person. He's the vice chairman of Ogilvy, a very respected thinker, prolific writer, and the author of Alchemy, which is one of the most popular brand strategy books around right now. His TED Talks have been viewed over six and a half million times, and a lot of his thinking has literally shaped the world around us. Rory's work has boldly explored human psychology and behavior for global airlines, international conglomerates, and of course, governments. He calls himself an anarchist. I've seen others call him a contrarian. And NPR has labeled him one of the leading minds in the world of branding. There's nobody like Rory. And this was truly an interesting conversation that I didn't want to end. And I think you'll feel the same way too. The first question I wanted to ask you is like, we understand the the policies and the rules that are being put in place to control populations across the world. But what I really wanted to start this conversation with you about was managing perceptions and emotions, especially of a population in panic. And I think we've seen different governments do different things. And you seem to have a real international perspective on branding and perception and persuasion and all of that. What have you seen across the world that you think is working where governments are taking psychology into account and people's subconscious motivators and things like that? It's a really interesting debate between persuasion and compulsion. And one of the things I think we were probably remiss about everywhere was it was assumed, maybe I've got this wrong, it'll be very interesting to look at the final results. And it will be, to be honest, it'll be months before we fully know what's going on. But um, I noticed that the UK had gone into voluntary seclusion to a significant extent before it was made mandatory. And that might be a mixture of fear. It might be a mixture of, as I said, you know, slight laziness, which is, well, if I've got a good excuse to work from home today, which is, uh, you know, the possible threat, I might as well do so. And I think a very interesting thing will emerge when we need to come out of lockdown which is what mixture do we use of rules? And there will need to be rules. For example, I think it'll be a long time before mass audience events reopen, whether that's theatrical performances, cinemas, or sporting events. That will need to be rule-driven. Some part of it could be voluntary. I mean, I've always half-joked, but there's a serious point to it, which is that a large percentage of the working population are introverted by temperament, and in many ways, quite like a degree of self-isolation or working from home. And it's always worth remembering that the patterns of behavior in society tend to be disproportionately set by the most extrovert, the most sociable, and the most active. And it's also worth remembering that the social norms are set by the active, because active people are visible, whereas people staying at home and watching television, by definition, aren't. 
So as soon as you leave your house, you're exposed to lots of active people, whereas inactive people, I mean, people who are quite content with a screen and a book, are by nature tend to be uh, less salient and less visible. And so I think there's a part of it, which is that you can significantly reduce the amount of people traveling at peak times on public transport and the amount of people traveling into city centers. If you legislate for a degree of choice, now no one's yet suggested this, it's what I call libertarian legislation, which is that you actually legislate. Now, it's generally assumed by libertarians that all legislation is welfare limiting because it's choice limiting. But I think it's possible to legislate, if you read John Stuart Mill on liberty, as much of his concern about the constraints to individual liberty were directed at social norms and conventions as were directed at government and government compulsion and forced action. And it's simply an area of discussion. I'll give you a lovely example of libertarian legislation, which is here in the UK, we have a first term female member of parliament for Faversham called Helen Waitley. And her legislation is simply around what you might call a norm or a default. And she simply says that when you advertise a new job in any form, it's assumed that the job offers a degree of flexible working unless the ad states the contrary. And so that's simply changing a norm so that by default, jobs are deemed to be flexible unless there's a good reason for the opposite. Now, at the moment, what you tend to have is a default where jobs are assumed to be nine to five, five days a week, no flexibility of place, no flexibility of time, unless the advertisement specifically states otherwise. And what was quite interesting about this is it was intended, and rightly so, particularly to benefit women who were either carers or, for example, working mothers. But it was equally popular. She discovered to her surprise that she got equally as much support among men. And it's an interesting point about this, which is, I mean, one of the things that's always fascinated me about business behavior is how little use we made of video conferencing. If you consider the fact that in some respects, it's like a superpower. You know, you can talk to an audience of 50 people in Romania, and 20 minutes later, I can be talking to three people in Atlanta. Now, you can't even do that if you know, my employer gave me a Learjet. You know, it's a pretty special ability. And yet I, I never fully understood why people didn't sit down and go, this is an important technology. It enables a significant improvement in quality of life, in freedom of whom we can employ and how and under what terms. And I think brings with it pretty significant cost savings and productivity gains if we use it intelligently. But nobody really did that. They just kept on working as though it was 1984 and plowing into the office at eight o'clock. I mean, this has struck me as weird for a long time in that people get up early in the morning, they travel into work in, on crowded roads or crowded railway trains, and then when they get to the office at, let's say, 8.45, they spend the first two hours doing their email. <laughs> and, but your email's exactly the same at home. There's no point in mm. coming into an office to do something which is location irrelevant, and yet people still did. So I think there's a role for what I call libertarian legislation, which is just giving people a right according to their preference and their specific circumstances and needs, the right to do things differently in defiance of what are arbitrary conventions. That's really interesting. So it seems like you're saying 
the choice isn't enough. You actually have to sometimes change the defaults so that people are forced to make a choice. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're a kind of, you know, a, very much a copying species. What is weird is generally defined by what most other people don't do. And you can understand why in the workplace, someone who's slightly nervous about their job is going to be terrified of working from home on a Friday if the other person who's after the next promotion comes into the office on Friday. So there's a kind of FOMO going on there, quite literally, I think, which creates mm -hmm. a kind of presenteeism. Now, that may have mm -hmm. absolutely nothing to do with productivity or the economic value you create while you're at work. I mean, famously, the founder of my own company, David Ogilvy, says he never wrote a single word in the office. He'd go into the office to talk to people or administer things, but all the ads he wrote, all the books he wrote, he wrote at home. Now, he was obviously the company founder, so he had the freedom to do that. And I'm a kind of vice chairman, so I have the freedom to adopt fairly whimsical working patterns that happen to suit my temperament. And I like long periods of discretionary time alone in order to work. I also am a bit of a night owl. So I have the freedom, I suppose, partly because my job title is eccentric, you know, pretty much to work at a pace and pattern that suits me fairly well. And I think my productivity is boosted by that. Now, 95% of people in the workplace don't have that same freedom. If you're naturally an early bird and you're naturally highly extrovert and you don't like, some people like a very, very strong partition between their work life and their home life. And if you're one of those people, the existing arrangement probably suits you fine. And you're probably in, if not a majority, at least a fairly large minority. But there are a lot of people who are essentially forced to go with the flow. It's rather like, you know, if you're in a bunch of friends at a bar and people buy drinks in rounds, you're sort of forced to drink at the pace of the heaviest drinker in the group, because otherwise you miss out. And that I mm -hmm. think those same problems affect human behavior. I learned a lot of this, by the way, by reading books by a great guy who's at Cornell, I think, called Robert H. Frank. And he's written books called The Darwin Economy, for example. And one of the points he makes is that you know, there's an awful lot of human behavior, which is really signaling behavior. It's all to do with things like imagery and presentation and self-marketing, which is not really about you know, mainstream productivity. It's done. So we travel to Frankfurt to visit a client, not because the meeting couldn't be performed more effectively on Zoom, but to signal our commitment to that client. And let's say there's a client issuing a pitch. If one of your four competitors decides to fly out to Frankfurt to take the briefing, then the other four companies are basically obliged to do the same for fear of being placed at a relative disadvantage. And there's an awful lot of human consumption and consumer activity, which is positional rather than absolute in its gains. And so it's worth remembering that, you know, don't think that naturally competitive behavior as adopted by individuals is necessarily the same as what is collectively optimal or, or rational. Yeah, that's really interesting. This idea that you're describing that you can give people permission, I guess, to kind of, you know, especially, let's say, introverts, to kind of be introverts and not have to go with the norm by just changing some defaults or changing the way choices are made around things like video conferencing or visiting a client in person. Like that can be very, very powerful. And that's engineered by some governing body. 
What was also interesting to me that I wanted to talk to you about is that in some countries, you did have the public reacting really positively to the pandemic. So like in Hong Kong, for example, they did really well. They claimed an early state of emergency because they still remembered SARS. People already had their masks. They're pretty well organized, but it wasn't perceived as a government effort or a government success. It was really perceived as a success on behalf of the people because the government seemed to be lagging. Yeah, I mean, those are, you know, according to the Hofstede measure, uh, Eastern societies tend to be more collectivist. So you have the opposite in the United States where you have a very strong individualist tendency and a large group of people are actively resisting the lockdown and demanding to go back to work for example. And so part of that, I think, does reflect cultural differences. Um, And it's worth remembering, it's always worth remembering in any international setting that Anglo-Saxon cultures, of which we're both part of one, um, are anomalous, in fact. Um, uh, You know, I I mean, there are very, very many things about your typical, and I, I don't mean this racially, I mean this culturally, that if you've grown up in the United States or the UK, to some extent, you know, Scandinavia, for example, um, your particular worldview is likely to be much, much more individualistic uh, than uh, is typical for the world as a whole. Um, you know, um, and also, um, you, you, there, you know, simple patterns like our approach to extended families is completely different to that which would be seen as completely normal in, you know, three or four billion of the world's people. Mm-hmm. You know, broadly speaking, we have very, very nuclear families. We don't live with our grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we think of that as perfectly normal. Um, in the wider scheme of things, uh, it's uh, it's rather an anomaly. In fact, David Brooks, interestingly, who I think is a very interesting commentator in the New York Times, uh, wrote a piece recently suggesting that, you know, the, the idea of the nuclear family was a mistake and it's kind of a luxury for the rich. Yes, I read that article and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. It, uh, me too, yeah. I, I, because we, you know, we, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there are strong elements, you know, where, you know, because Anglo Saxon cultures have been quite successful in some dimensions, uh, we don't ask ourselves nearly often enough whether at the absolutely personal level, at the level of lived experience as opposed to economic success, uh, whether there's an invisible cost. Just as, for example, there's an economic gain but an invisible cost to the extent to which Americans until recently were unbelievably prepared to up sticks in search of pay rises. You know, you'd move to the other side of a continent in order to get a 20% pay rise. I'm sure that economists regard that as highly desirable. I mean, Brooks's piece made the point that at some level in extended families, uh, there's a mutual support network and an intergenerational support network, which protects people, I think, against all sorts of downsides. There's also, I I guess, a kind of reputational framework. If you look at something like the Indian divorce rate and compare it to the American divorce rate, the Indian divorce rate is absolutely minuscule. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, a large part of that may be, you know, cultural tradition, but some part of it may be wider parental pressure and societal pressure. So the degree to which a young Anglo-Saxon person, this is often called weird, isn't it? It's what is it, white, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic is the acronym. And a large amount of behavioral science work is done on students or graduate students 
from weird countries. And uh, it is worth remembering, for example, that people who are living in highly cosmopolitan settings in, let's say, New York City or London, are in a megalopolis. They have lives which are hugely atypical. And I don't mind that, by the way, the fact that they're atypical. What I do mind a little bit is the assumption that their style of life is also inherently superior, more sophisticated, and uh, more desirable than someone who lives more locally. Right, right. And so there's a degree of it, by the way, which I also think is actually dishonest, that in many ways, people are forced to move to large cities for economic reasons. And having done so, they confabulate the reasons why those cities are so great. I think if one's being completely objective about it, there's a hell of a lot to be said for living in suburbia or living in smaller mm -hmm. towns, simply mm -hmm. in terms of convenience, ease, particularly if you're in defense of small towns, it's worth remembering that the internet and online shopping and so forth and online stimulus through Netflix or whatever it may be, the cultural deficit you suffer from living further away from a large city is a fraction of what it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. You know, in other mm -hmm. words, I could go and live in West Wales or Snowdonia or something, and my Netflix would be just as good as yours, and my Amazon would be just as good as yours. And, you know, it's not as if, you know, it's not as if you're no longer have access to, uh, you know, interesting or exciting stimulus, regardless of the place you find yourself in. So logically, the case for living somewhere out of a large city should have grown. But equally, it sort of baffles me that young people, understandably to a degree, say, oh, you know, property is completely unaffordable. And you go, well, actually, if you are prepared to put up with a sort of commute by train rather than a commute by tube, there is, in fact, fairly affordable, fairly attractive property. It's just not the property that suits your own particular self-image. And so yeah. this is where I think there is an economic trap in that once you've gone, once you've got into debt, acquiring educational credentials, the only place you can actually pay that debt back in terms of salary differential is by going to a huge megalopolis. And therefore, yeah. being forced to do so, and being forced to do so in order to keep up with your friends to an extent, then forces people, I think, to post-rationalize reasons as to why city dwelling because i'll be absolutely candid with you okay this is why i'm mixed which is i pretty much thought i'd never leave london and then i had twins now had i had my children not through batch processing but one at a time i think i would have stuck <laughs> it out i would have stuck it out in london for, for child number one and then at the point of child yeah. number two and wondering where they went to school and so forth i probably would have bottled it but what i in fact did is i moved out once we had twins fairly rapidly and in defense, and this may be a, you know, a dose of post-rationalization as well, I suddenly discovered that there were extraordinary gains in terms of convenience, ease of movement, and actually that business, that, which is you're just bumping into the same people time after time rather than endlessly doing business with strangers, which mm. do make life quite a bit easier. Maybe it's something you care much more about when you're 50 or 40, or I was, what, what was I then, 35, 36. Maybe it's something you care about more when you're 36 than you're 26. But but it struck me that there were all these extraordinary benefits to living slightly outside London that up to that point had never occurred to me. Well, you bring up a good point, though. When you when you sign on for that expensive degree, you don't realize that you're signing on for all these second order commitments as well. 
That's beautifully put, by the way. That's really, that's a lovely expression of it. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder if also this common threat has allowed for other kind of exceptional things to happen. For example, Apple and Google partnering up to create that contact tracing system, which so far in the media in the US has been pretty well received, even though you would imagine it brings up a lot of privacy questions. But I wonder if these kinds of things get fast-tracked because the public is so much more willing to embrace them because there's a public enemy. They no longer see corporations like Apple and Google as the enemy. They see them aligned as, a, as all of us aligned against a, a different enemy altogether. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think it was Ronald Reagan who made this point when he was negotiating with probably Gorbachev, was it, which is if we were invaded by aliens, the Russians and the Americans would bury their differences within seconds. <laughs> and the extent to which we're only properly one in the presence of some external other, perhaps a regrettable facet of human psychology, but it may be at some level true. I mean, the thing that's fascinating me here, and I've just written a piece about this, is that we've seen you know, a variety of engineers from companies. One area where Britain really excels is in Formula One, in car racing. Car racing with curves, not where you go round and round and round, just for American right, right. listeners. You know, where you might actually make a right turn occasionally. So strangely, I think all but about three or four of the Formula One companies are headquartered in the UK. And some of them have produced extraordinary uh, prototypes and indeed started the manufacture of essential medical equipment in an incredibly short period of time. And the question I was asking exactly in this article is, how come we can do this under conditions of crisis? Why don't people, why don't people go to McLaren in ordinary under ordinary conditions, and say, what can you do here which is spectacularly inventive? And it is exactly that thing of necessity being the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. But what is it that's possible that could motivate us to do exactly these things under normal conditions? You know, I don't think the economists have got it right. It patently isn't money. It may be that, you know, I did one theory is that, you know, the levels of bureaucracy that normally apply and if you were someone who worked for a Formula One team, I imagine, as I said by piece, you know, three hours dealing with healthcare regulators would leave you wanting to bite your own arm off with the sheer boredom of it. You know, if you're used mm -hmm. to working in the, the, the high-octane, white-knuckle world of Grand Prix racing, then, you know, the, dealing with the kind of bureaucracy of healthcare procurement might be a bit of an obstacle. But there is something there which we should be able to capture in normal times. And for whatever reason, we don't do it. Yeah. I always assumed that for some reason, a crisis gives you the ultimate permission. Like there's just, it almost feels like no holds barred in a way that I don't know that your boss could give you. It gives you permission to fail, certainly, in that, you know, you could argue that normal institutional businesses and entrepreneurs are distinct from this. Entrepreneurs have a very different approach to upside and downside risk to a desk jockey in a corporation. Mm -hmm. But your typical institutionalized man, actually, and I, I, might, I might actually use man uh, in both senses here, is very, very biased towards what you might call incremental quantifiable improvement under normal circumstances. Because something, you might argue that something that has a 20% a chance of spectacular success but an 80% chance of failure is actually a bad career move for that person. Mm -hmm. Because 80% of the time he loses his job, fails to get the promotion. Now, under wartime conditions, 
you know, Churchill, actually, if anything, uh, as a wartime leader, had too great an appetite for bonkers ideas. And some of his advisors had to kind of uh, throttle back on some of the more insane ideas Churchill would entertain. You know, things like, for example, the bouncing bomb made famous in the Dam Busters raid, you know, would, would that have been given much consideration in peacetime? I rather suspect not. I always felt like these grand, ridiculous, but important ideas really characterize a time in the past. But I don't, do you feel like these ideas, like this culture of coming up with these kinds of insane ideas, at least on like a cultural level, is happening now? Maybe it's harder. I mean, it's worth remembering that, that, I mean, if you look at probably the most significant period of innovation in world history, I mean, people argue about this, and there's a huge argument, you know, because some people, and with, with some good reason, would say, no, 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 in its effect in human life, the washing machine was a bigger invention than the internet. Mm-hmm. Now, the argument was, it, before the washing machine, any poor to middle-income household would have to spend, typically the wife of the household would spend a day in laundry work. So domestic appliances, by enabling women to join the workforce in much greater numbers, mm-hmm. arguably had a bigger societal effect than something like the internet. So well, I, I'm not, by the way, taking sides in that argument. I'm just saying the argument exists. Some people calculate that the 1930s was pretty much the high point for meaningful innovation. And that we, in, in many cases, so in some cases, like speed of transportation, we're up against the laws of physics. You know, you can make a train go at 500 miles an hour, but it's really damn hard. I would argue that it's also slightly pointless in that, for, you know, for a large, large number of journeys, making the journey productive or entertaining gets you far better gains. I'd also argue that there's something, if you think about it, which I always comment on, and apologies if you, anybody's heard this before, which is that if you take my grandfather, who was a doctor in a Welsh mining town, so he, you know, he was pretty well paid, in fact, there were huge categories of goods that he could buy that ordinary people couldn't. The difference between a middle class, a, a wealthy upper middle class salary, which his was, and a median half salary, in terms of what you might call not numerical wealth, but actually effective utility. So just to give an example, a bottle of whiskey in 1920 or 1930 would have been a week's wages for a working man. Okay, that's a bottle of spirits. Now, my grandfather could buy a car. He could employ some servants. He could buy a radio. He bought a washing machine. He bought a dishwasher. Ultimately, he could buy a television. These were absolutely transformative technologies, which he could buy and other people couldn't. Now, if we take that experiment on another 50 years and we let's take you and me, and you multiplied your salary by 10, okay, or even 15. I'm not saying it wouldn't make a big difference to your life and you might retire early and do something like that. There isn't actually something you can buy. Okay, you'd sit at the front of the plane rather than in the middle or, you know, wherever it is you choose to sit, and your holidays Mm -hmm. would become uh, progressively a bit more exotic or a bit more um, sybaritic. You know, you might go and stay in one of those sort of huts on stilts in the Maldives or something. But it's not like your life would have been changed spectacularly by any of those things. And so there is an interesting question. If you regard the fact that traditionally the rich have provided early funding, early stage funding for meaningful inventions, which eventually trickle down to the less rich, we don't really see that happening anymore. 
a little bit of my inner socialist would go, if there is a reason for redistribution of wealth at the moment, it isn't like rich people are funding things which would make a huge difference if only they could be manufactured at scale more cheaply. In fact, you know, very large amounts of wealthy people's expenditure are almost spectacularly pointless, you know, like luxury yachts and so forth. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would, I'd be highly tempted if you gave me a billion dollars to buy a yacht. But I don't, <laughs> to be absolutely honest, I'd still, I'd buy it on the grounds that what's the point of being a billionaire if you don't have a yacht? I'm not sure the yacht would add that to, even, even while, while I was writing the check, I wouldn't be that confident that the yacht would add that significantly to my happiness. And at the same time, of course, we devalue things. You know, I always make the point that King Louis XIV would have given you half of Gascony in exchange for your 4K TV. <laughs> and so there, there is that interesting yeah. debate, which is maybe meaningful. I mean, this is why I do ask questions like after this crisis, can we change working patterns to some degree to give people a little bit more leisure? I did want to ask you about this as a society, whether it's consumerism or work, like you described. Do you think anything will change permanently or could? Don't know. I'm, I'm, I mean, I hope there are enough people like me who will try our damnedest to make it change. I think it's also meaningful that a lot of people have been exposed to remote working and technologies like Zoom and have discovered that there's a significant upside to working this way. It's not all downside. The view of a video conference as being a it's a very, very misjudged view that a video conference is a poor relation to a physical meeting, in many respects, not least the ease of attending and the fact that it doesn't have to last two hours. There are huge advantages to meeting in this way. That's not even factoring in the environmental impact, which is not negligible either. And so I hope it changes. You see, standard economic theory assumes that we choose the balance of work and leisure that is optimal for us. Now, this is so stupid as a model of human behavior. First of all, because how hard do you work? Well, in most environments, you have to work a little bit harder than the person in the desk next to you for symbolic reasons, not productive reasons. Secondly, of course, the unit of money is almost infinitely divisible, whereas the unit of leisure isn't. There's not much point in working a four and a half day week, is there, really? Okay. Right. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, you know, it'll be um, the other thing is, which I think is really interesting, and, and something Ogilvy is exploring, and I'd like to share more widely. One of the things we debated during this condition, which we weren't able to enact, but I've, I'm determined to keep alive, is an idea that either when a company runs into a bit of a rocky patch, or as a norm, certain people could go into a four day week for either every week or three weeks out of four for 90% of salary. Now, the mathematically able among you will go, well, that's far too much, because if you're working a four-day week, it should be 80% of salary. No one is going to take that deal, because they know damn well they take a 20% cut in salary, they'll end up working about 92% as hard as they did before. So mm -hmm. you'd have to be a total mug to take the four-day week deal if you were paid pro rata unless you worked in one of those fields where you literally, you know, you closed down your laptop and you walked away and you didn't do a thing. Okay. And so no one's going to take that trade-off, but the 90 for 40 trade-off where maybe you work a bit longer two days a week and maybe you do work Fridays, you know, one week in three. Now we're starting to create exchanges which people might willingly opt for either permanently or for part of the year. I would also hope that millennials 
will start to factor this kind of thing into who they work for. That the possibility of flexibility of work. And one of the things I'm, you know, I'm fanatical about with my team because I'm a fanatical early Zoom convert is, look, if you think you can be just as productive and you don't have any meetings to attend and all your work can be done virtually without requirement of us being in a specific place, if you want to go off to Marbella for a week and work there, it really doesn't bother me. I think millennials in the U.S. are a little primed for this already because before any of this started, there was this backlash starting against the idea of hustle culture and overwork, which had really become romanticized in the last 20 years. If I'm right, Bernie was keen that everybody in the United States should have a mandatory, was it three weeks paid holiday a year? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Certainly, the North American approach to vacation entitlement is horrendous. I mean, I had a friend who didn't work, who, who turned down a job at Google for this reason. And she was a Brit. And she said, look, look, I'd absolutely love to work for you. You know, the money you're offering is fantastic. But let's be realistic, OK? I'm in a strange country which I want to discover and I need to understand better. I won't be able to discover that country adequately with two weeks vacation because one of those two weeks I'll have to spend going back to the UK to visit my parents. Hardly unreasonable. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is I would then have five days worth to discover America. And part of my reason for moving to the United States is that, I mean, yours is a country with a hell of a lot of shit to see. Okay, I love going to the United States. But the idea, this is a classic case, because I can genuinely say this. I've never met anybody. This is an example of how social norms become very heavily enshrined. Going back to John Stuart Mill's point, okay, I've never met anybody in Europe at all, zero, okay, who is so right-wing, they think we should have less vacation. <laughs> no, so right. Literally, I have met one or two people who think that there are too many public holidays or bank holidays, which is where you get a Monday off. So I've met one or two people, and they, they generally go, look, it's, a bit, you know, it's all a bit of a disruption, and then you know, it means that a lot of people then take the next four days as holiday. In France, it's even crazier, because you often get a public holiday on a Wednesday, which means everybody does a thing called faire le pont, which is to make the bridge where they take the Monday and the Tuesday or the Thursday yeah. and the Friday off. And then that means the yeah. entire country is dysfunctional for a week just because of a <laughs> public holiday. And, you know, I'd, I'd sympathize to people. But in terms of the amount of vacation we, we, we get, I've met some right-wing nutters, okay, but I've never, never heard anybody even suggest that Gosh, we could get, you know, if you think about it, we could get another 2% of GDP if we just had only two weeks holiday. Nobody's ever said that. Robert Frank does an experiment where he says, would you rather live in a world where the average person earns $80,000 a year and you earn sixty, or would you rather live in a world where you earn $50,000 a year and the average person earns thirty? And quite a lot of people say, I'd rather live in the world where I earn fifty and most people earn thirty because it's a relative measure. Wealth matters. If I want beachfront property and, you know, and, and other status goods, relative wealth is more important than absolute wealth. Okay. But on the other hand, if you do the same experience with vacation entitlement, would you rather have four weeks vacation when everybody else gets six? Or would you rather have three weeks vacation when everybody else gets two? Nearly everybody plumps for four weeks. So vacation and leisure is an absolute good, whereas wealth is a positional good. I think it's a wonderful thought experiment, actually. It's one of the simplest things I've ever seen to prove a very, very simple point. That is very interesting. I would have never thought of it like that. Can we talk really quickly about stimulus packages across the world? Yeah, not an area of expertise, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, 
I know that, like you said, a lot of these things are complicated and maybe we hesitate to draw conclusions, but what do they reveal if you had to say something about them? The fact that the U.S. has a one-time payment of $1,200 or something like that for most families, whereas other countries are doing a percentage, a high percentage of people's wages. Others are doing um, actual like monthly payments in one or $2,000 amounts. Do you think it reveals anything about our social contracts or anything interesting that's kind of surfaced because of this? I think from my perspective, the US has always had a slight, it's been a slight outlier there in that in some respects, you believe something which is both very good and very bad, which is you kind of believe that everybody is the author of their own success, mm-hmm. which, you know, you don't, you don't really attach much belief in luck, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. And to some extent, you venerate very, very successful business people in a way that most other, many, many not most, many other countries don't. You know, in Britain, if someone's very, very rich, there's admiration mixed with suspicion. Yes, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Which is, you know, they, they, they might be highly worthwhile people, but they might be either a bit psychopathic or, or else, you know. Now, right. the fact that you believe everybody is the author of their own destiny is, in a sense, a wonderful delusion. Yes. Which has, by the way, very, very positive effects in the, the extent to which people put an effort into doing what they do very, very well is generally gratifying. The only thing is it does make you correspondingly a bit merciless to the victims of misfortune. And yes. sometimes misfortune, by the way, is self-authored. I'm not, I'm not one of those people who goes, you know, although it's complicated. You know, I've had friends who are alcoholic. Is that their fault or is it genetic? I mean, who the hell knows, you know? But you can be a bit merciless to the victims of simple bad luck. I also feel like it kind of engenders this belief that if you aren't successful, it's your own fault. Like it has this other opposite contextual story that it's telling. Yeah. The other thing I think that becomes awkward for America, which is never talked about, which always interests me. And by the way, do, do, do not take this badly because I'm a huge Americanophile. And oh, I can tell you so. are. No, I yeah. love having discussions like this. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm also, as I said, a very broad Americanophile. You know, I've been to the Wisconsin State Fair. It's not just, you know, the Statue <laughs> of Liberty. And, okay, right. You know, it's not just the Statue of Liberty and Mount Rushmore kind of stuff. But um, (laughs) if you think about the United States, it had a very unusual position from about 1950. It had about 50% of the world's GDP. And for a long period, right up until the 1980s, not only were you much wealthier than the rest of the world, but when you went to the rest of the world, the rest of the world was a bit shit. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, you know, Britain in 1975 was shit compared to the United States in 1975. Now, Britain is still poorer than the United States, not so starkly as it was back then. But the extent to which Britain is crap compared to the United States is much less visibly. Mm -hmm. uh, Or Mexico, for example. So the extent to which the good things about America, to some extent, migrated outwards. You know, now I, I occasionally watch, um, nor- well, as often as I can, I watch North by Northwest. And you have to remind yourself as a Brit that this was actually filmed in, I think it's about 1955, is that right? There are details in the film and the architecture and the train, which would have looked, my, my, my dad, who's 90, he and his brother, when they were teenagers, they used to get American magazines. I'm not quite sure how, but they used to get the Saturday Evening Post and something like that. And they said, when you were a British kid in 19, what would it be, 1940-something, they said the car advertisements were like science fiction. 
it was, you know, convertible cars with an electric opening roof and, you know, V8 straight, extraordinary stuff. They said it was like it was like another planet. Now, that isn't the same as it once was. Okay, it's not, you know, it's not like your cars are order of magnitude bigger or shinier than ours are or whatever. So there is an interesting thing in America, which which I think, you know, is awkward for people who grew up in a, where you just automatically assumed that everywhere else you went was a bit rubbish. That's another change which I always mention because nobody else, I, I'm not because I think it's hugely important. I'm mentioning it because I think nobody else mentions it. The contrast you'd experience in going from the United States in 1960 to Britain or whatever would have been absolutely mm-hmm. enormous. And I think there's something interesting going on there as well. But no, I think I think you can be a little bit merciless towards people who are simply the vi- victim of misfortune for whatever reason. You know, Canada's different there, I guess, isn't it? You know, not that different in many respects. But the Canadians would have a slightly less individualistic strain to them. Well, I think at the very least, when Americans see what these packages look like across the world, it does invite these questions about what that means in terms of what our government is to us or what we expect of it. And I think those questions have been coming up in the U.S. at least for a while as more and more private or public companies take over more of the infrastructure and services that you would expect the government to, to handle for you. I think it's just something that Americans have been negotiating for a while. Well, I, also, I also think there's a, there's a fundamental misconception of economics, which is the belief in economics tends to lead... Now, you know, most countries, the United States included, and the United States, by the way, has one fantastic advantage, which is you have a very gloriously optimistic consumer base. So the typical American tends to assume that life is capable of almost infinite improvement. In other words, it's very low in cynicism. And therefore, if you develop a new way of doing things, you have an automatic and fairly sizable market for it because of the United States, you know, you know, neophilia, call it what you want, but willingness to adopt new practices and new things. And that, by the way, is, you know, a wonderful attribute. And the United States is growing in wealth and, and, you know, GDP growth is in the US is pretty consistent over a straight line. And um, one of the things I think that tends to happen with, with economics is it's kind of a science which arose under conditions of scarcity. Now, it tends to assume that what everybody wants is more crappier stuff at a lower price. I literally read this, by the way, in an economics paper, and I I was almost in guffaws of laughter. It was an American economics paper pointing out how much more efficient in the 1990s the American brewing industry was compared to the German brewing industry. And, you know, I, you know, I'm, a, you know I'm not German, I'm a Brit. But even so, I was going, yeah, but, but, but there is kind of a quality difference. Okay, you know, let's, let's be absolutely mm-hmm. candid here. Okay, in that you know, German brewing, you know, you know, offers extraordinary range of choice, variety, vice beers. Uh, you know, you've got the purity laws. Uh, you've got extremely you know, extraordinarily rich ecosystem. Whereas the American ecosystem, a bit like the American ecosystem for cheese, you know, twenty years ago, was all around scale and efficiency and low price, and not around quality and variety and diversity. And what you see now is America's gone from being, I would argue, once the hipsters took over, America went from being about the worst country in the world in which to drink beer to one of the best, because they abandoned this assumption that what people wanted was cheap beer produced in extraordinary quantities with enormous economies of scale. So I think there's a really interesting thing there, which is that so much of economics is probably driving government to produce 
what you might call, or driving just businesses to produce kind of lowest common denominator products. And yet a simple glance at who the most profitable companies in the world are. The most profitable companies in the world by a huge margin are luxury goods companies, whether whether you call that Apple, which is a kind of luxury goods company, okay, or it's Louis Vuitton or whatever. It's those companies that most ignore that kind of thing and concentrate the most on brand differentiation, brand value, and perceptual value rather than on narrow definitions of efficiency that make the most money. So are you saying that maybe GDP is is not really a measure of the real economics of a country? I certainly wonder about whether if you printed, I, I just asked this question because I'm interested in behavioral science. If you printed a stack of money and gave everybody lots of money, the assumption would be you must not do that because it will cause inflation. And I'm simply not sure that's mm-hmm. true anymore. Now, patently, okay, if the price of something absolutely non-substitutable goes up, and that would be gasoline, bread, you know, grain. If you had the price of bread doubled under the Roman Empire, that inflation caused you know, inordinate problems because you couldn't really substitute for it. Mm-hmm. Do I think in the same way that if you gave everybody huge amounts of cash, there would necessarily be huge inflation in the cost of, for example, flights? I'm not sure. Because if you think about it, when this is terrible marketing bullshit, but it's always worth doing. You know, When people buy a flight, what are they buying? Okay. Well, at the simplest level, they're buying transportation, but actually a marketer would say, no, 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 they're not buying transportation. Depending on how wanky the marketer was, they'd say they're buying self, self-actualization or they're buying awareness, you know, or they may say they're buying status. They're just showing off on Instagram that they're in the Maldives and you're mm-hmm. not. But you can interpret these behaviors, consumer behaviors in lots of different ways. Now, you can't really substitute for, for oxygen in the environment. You can't really substitute for you know calories in our food supply. But you can substitute for a lot of those positional goods quite easily. And then there's the question of whether inflation necessarily matters in some of those areas. That's interesting. That's, that's a big idea. I, I understand there's a weird group of people who are involved in something called modern monetary theory, which more or less says something similar, which is that actually government could spend huge amounts of money basically apportioning it fairly willy-nilly, and actually this would have actually a fairly paltry effect on actual behavior and therefore on inflation. Mm-hmm. Now, that seems you know that, that seems an t- incredibly bold view, but it's not, it, it's, it's one of those things which... Maybe you shouldn't act on it, but it's certainly worth exploring as a possibility. And you seem to think that the probability of inflation actually happening with these circumstances is different now because people's consumerism has changed. I mean, and of course, and of course, there's the question of how undesirable a reasonable amount of inflation would be. I see. I see. Which is that one thing about inflation is it does something which arguably is quite necessary, which is it redistributes wealth from the old to the young. Mm-hmm. Inflation would also enable house prices to return to some sort of sanity in uh, metropolitan areas without necessarily leaving people underwater. It would cancel debts fairly effectively. So you could argue that uh, in a world where we generally regard intergenerational inequality as a major problem, inflation around the 3 to 4% mark may not be all that unhealthy. This is fascinating. I kind of wish we had started the conversation with this. I've never heard an argument for inflation like this before, and it all seems so logical. <laughs> no, I mean, the only thing is I, I, I'm always conscious of the fact that this is I'm being deliberately contentious here 
But equally, the reason I'm contentious is that most thinking on most matters of this kind falls back to standard economic theory as a lazy default. Mm -hmm. And of course, what we know about complex systems is depending on the circumstances, the same impetus can have very different behavioral results. We always talk about inflation. Gosh, isn't inflation terrible? Yet house price inflation, which is among the most disastrous things, hasn't been included in the measure of inflation. So how can you have a measure of inflation where a place to live and the cost thereof is not included in the basket of goods? Because there's this delusional belief that house pr increasing house prices is good mm -hmm. news. It's only good news if you're planning to downsize or if your parents are planning to die shortly. For everybody else through the course of their life, increasing house prices is a bad news story. Well, let me ask you something else that this brings up then. Why are we so married to these really faulty measures of growth and economic gain? I don't know. I mean, there have been attempts to kind of, you know, at Bhutan's growth national happiness. I think a bunch of economists worked with the French president at one stage on trying to get better measures. And it's worth remembering, of course, that. Part of the problem is we look at nearly all measures are snapshot measures, whereas life is lived by an individual over time. Now, I didn't introduce ergodicity and non-ergodicity into the debate because it would have added another half hour to the podcast, of which 15 minutes would be explaining the distinction. Mm -hmm. But what matters to your happiness is generally whether your well-being increases over the course of your life. And Now, there's an awful lot of statistics are misrepresented because of this snapshot. Now, this is, you know, if you look at the United States, the poorest 15%, 25% have hardly gained or indeed have lost out in relative terms. The richest 25% have gained fairly spectacularly. But they're not entirely the same people. So, you know, a trainee lawyer might well be in the poorest 25%, certainly in terms of his assets, might well be in, in the poorest 25% of the American population. No one would think of him as poor because his prospects are probably spectacular. Mm. So one of the problems is that it's much easier to get and compare snapshot data of what's happening to a particular group at a particular time, when actually the extent to which that translates to feelings of well-being may be incredibly inexact. Yeah. One of the reasons why you may, you know, you may have greater poverty in uh, you know, the poorest 25% of households is just smaller household mm -hmm. size. Or actually, people, more people attending higher education is arguably creating more poor people. Right. So how the, thing, how the thing looks in snapshot and how the thing plays out over time doesn't even connect very well to begin with. And so we're often looking at something at 90 degrees off the angle we should be looking at it. That's so interesting. And I think so emblematic of this entire discussion, which is really everything just seems to come down to a sense of perception. Everything is so relative. Um, and speaking of perception, I think that'd be a nice way to kind of end the discussion. I like to have these conversations come to a point where we ask you something personal and get your kind of more human take on what's going on. So I'll ask you, how has this pandemic changed your perception of your life, your work, your family, your world, whatever it is? How do you feel that it's Changed. A bit of an introvert. Uh, to be honest, in terms of there's mild anxiety all the time, which I could do without. I had a bout of mild anxiety when our neighbors contracted the disease. So I can do without that, that mild sense of awkwardness. In general, though, I regard it as, and always ha have done, 
the ability to be content within your own head, which is despised by extroverts, I've always seen as a bit of a badge of honor. Uh, just to give an example, I love this fact, which I only discovered the other day, and it's my favorite fact of the month, which is that there are only two sorts of two animals on the planet who can watch television without having to be trained how to do it, which is humans and dolphins. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, that is very interesting. So chimps don't really get television at first, and they go, it's a lot of moving shapes, I don't really get this. And eventually you can kind of get them into, no, 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 this is kind of like a representation. And apparently you can kind of train chimps. But dolphins get telly immediately. They go, oh, look at that. You know, what's he doing with that fish? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, I always think I always think that's evidence that watching television is evidence of higher intelligence and that the ability to enjoy things vicariously, by which I mean virtual tourism on YouTube is great fun. Have you ever done this? Just find some people who are walking around Prague with a 4K camera for two hours and just leave it on the telly. Yeah. It's nearly as good as going there. <laughs> is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So actually, no, the opportunity, one, I like working on Zoom. I like working remotely and I like working through video calls to a huge degree. Mm -hmm. My writing has improved because I have more time at home to really, really focus on written output. The, the one curse is, and this is where we've got to fight it, the one remaining curse is email. That's the one bane of my life, mm. which is every moment I'm talking to someone, which is like my job, doing my real job, <laughs> Every moment I'm doing that, there's an equivalent amount of unnecessary email building up in my inbox. Mm. And the extent to which email destroys your control over your time in a way that, of course, video calling doesn't. Video calling destroys the constraints of space, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't impinge on your time in the same way. It's email that we've got to fight. And actually, that's been, I think, a bane in, in most working life for um, ages. But I like the family time. I like the fact that the second I finish work, I'm already at home. I like the fact that we eat together. I like the fact that I go on walks, which I never did, because you can work when it's dark and enjoy the day while it's light to a degree. You know, I like the fact of the birdsong and the relatively empty roads. To a great extent, it's, it, you know, there, there are elements of this which are, of course, a huge human tragedy, and we must forget this. But there are elements to it where we can turn it to our advantage by not losing sight of what we like about this. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. If you really like this episode, sign up for our newsletter at conceptbureau.com forward slash insights. We share a lot more than just our podcast. I also publish articles on brand strategy. We have videos, a lot of great discussions. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, follow me at Triple Jazz. That's T-R-I-P-L-E-J-A-S. I share my daily thoughts on brand strategy and culture. So come join the discussion. And if you'd like to see all of my writing, I'm on Medium. Just find me under Jasmine Bina. <laughs>